We're starting a new series this, uh, this Sunday. Uh, we're going to spend 20 chapters uh, in the Old Testament, uh, 20 chapters that we think would be really good to be familiar with if we're going to understand what is the story of the Bible, what, what is its message, and especially when it comes to the Old Testament, which most of us, if we're honest, really aren't that familiar with. We kind of think like maybe we have a grasp of the Gospels. Maybe we kind of feel like we know what's going on in the New Testament. But um, in honor of 20 years at Tabernacle, we thought let's spend 20 chapters in the Old Testament. And so we're going to you know, take the bird's eye view and we'll do some big picture stuff. Uh, but, but, you know, we're just going to start in Genesis 1. So go ahead and open your Bibles uh, to Genesis 1. And then um, we'll, we're going we're gonna to kind of, you know, hang around in the Old Testament and do some, some different things. Um, we thought it would be good to start in, in Genesis 1 because it's the beginning, obviously. Uh, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to just, you know, so. Don't, don't worry, don't, don't panic. Um, we're going to read some selective portions of the, of the chapter and then just try to give an overview. But let's stand in honor of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 uh, for starters, and then we'll look at the rest of the chapter along the way. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let me pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word, uh, for how it is true and it teaches us about you. Uh, it also teaches us many other things, but we want to know what it says about how to know you better. Um, we want to be in a relationship with you. So please show us more of yourself. Show us Jesus, the power of your Holy Spirit. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Um, you know, so Genesis is, a, is a, a tricky book. Genesis 1 in particular is a kind of a tricky chapter to, to give a sermon on because uh, most people in church are very familiar with Genesis 1. And, and my guess is maybe we're even a little bit over familiar. We're, we're too familiar with it. Um, as much as we maybe struggle with what's the rest of the Old Testament about, I think most Christians feel like, yeah, I've got a handle on Genesis 1. But I am working under a, 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 you know, a theory this morning that most of us really don't know the main message of Genesis 1. We think we know it, but do we? Maybe you do, and good for you if you kind of get to the end of this. You go, yeah, that's, I'm, we're, we're all good here. But perhaps this morning may have something, you know, for you that's going to go, oh, I hadn't seen it that way before. And, and you know, if that's the Lord's grace, then good. Um, but what we are starting with in verses 1 and 2 is a picture of a God who's preexistent, you know, who's there in the beginning, before the beginning. God is the, you know, without cause, and he's the first cause, and, and so on. And that he's doing something to... Uh, to the, you know, the verse two, that the earth was without form and void, um, that there's a, like theologians would refer to a chaos, you know, a, a, a circumstance that God is going to create structures and then fill those structures and bring order out of that chaos. So let's talk about what happened in the beginning when God created, and then we're going to talk about humanity in his image, and then we're going to talk about uh, the new creation. So that's your orientation. Let's start with this question. 
What's the Bible about? What, what is this book about? Um, may, maybe you've got a particular answer or maybe you can imagine some different answers that people could come up with. Uh, a religious rule book is, is one of the first things that I think people think of. Um, it could be a, a morality manual, you know, just telling you how to be a good boy or a good girl and not be a bad person, you know, that, that, that's up for grabs. Uh, it could be like a, a spiritual, you know, book of spiritual stories, just sort of inspiring spiritual stories, and, and that would be, you know, something that people would, would imagine the Bible to be. Others would say this is an anthology of religious intolerance, you know, if they maybe had a bad experience with the church or with Christians or something like that. They don't like the Bible. And then there's plenty of other folks who just kind of shrug. Uh, they don't know, or, or, you know, and then there's plenty of Bible-believing, you know, church-going Christians who say, well, the Bible, this is a book about how to go to heaven. How to go to heaven when you die, you need to know that, that message. So um, there's pros and cons to each of those responses, but I'm here to say that none of those responses is really helpful for, to answer the question, what's the Bible fundamentally about? This book is a book about God. That's what this book is. This book is, is given by God. It's about him. Yes, it involves us. Yes, there's spiritual stories. Yes, there's, there's moral lessons. You know, yes, there are things that uh, we need to know. And yes, it tells us how to go to heaven when we die. And, and yes, it's even been misused, you know, right? People who have this beef about religious intolerance, we have to go and go, well, tell me about what you experienced. And, and maybe there's some things that we could, you know, do some repenting and apologizing for. It wouldn't be a bad idea. Um, so, but at the very, very core, what is the Bible about? It's about God. You know, all those other things, maybe there's some valid points, maybe some invalid things, but if you don't respond with, it's a book about God, it teaches us who God is so that we can know him better, so that we can relate to him, and, and more importantly, be in relationship with him, then we're missing the main point of the Bible. Same is true for Genesis chapter 1, right? What is the Bible about? The Bible is a true story about the one true God, the God who made me and takes care of me, who loved me and gave himself for me. The Bible tells us lots of other things, but if we miss that, we're missing the whole, you know, the, the main message. So skeptics love to, to kind of uh, trash the Bible and tell us why we shouldn't believe it. Uh, one of the things that they'll do is they'll look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We're only focusing on Genesis 1 right now. Uh, but the creation account, and they'll go, look, the, the Bible's just another kind of wacky, ancient, religious text uh, that we really can't trust. And when you read Genesis 1 and 2 alongside other ancient creation accounts, um, you know, then you know, that we just lump them all together. But, but can you? Should you? Uh, I don't know if you've been in you know, classrooms or had roommates or family members or whatever who have basically taken that position that the Bible really isn't reliable. You shouldn't, shouldn't believe it. It's just ancient fables and things that are just like any other ancient you know, manuscripts. Do, be, be honest about the comparison and the contrast. So 
For those that say the Bible is just another, another creation myth or whatever, consider for a fact that just about every other creation, ancient narrative reads like a violent fantasy saga and then compare that or contrast that, more, more preferably contrast that with Genesis 1 and you get a much different picture. So here's what I'm talking about. Other ancient creation uh, accounts like the Enuma Elish is Babylonian and it talks about the, the gods and then the demigods and then humanity being created and so on. And you have gods like uh, Tiamat and Marduk, right? And um, Marduk is the newer god and Tiamat's been reigning for a while and they go to battle and Marduk defeats Tiamat. And then he cuts her dead body in two. And then from her entrails, the world is made. Everything that, you know, you know the universe is, is, gets created out of her corpse. And then, you know, great, Tiamat's done and then Marduk rises to power and then another god gets killed. And from the blood of that god, then they make human beings. And that's the, the Babylonian Enuma Elish account. You know, kind of gross. And then you get other accounts, like the Sumerian accounts, and this one's called the uh, Atrahasis Epic, where you've got, again, you know, a, a panoply of gods. You've got the god of, uh, uh, of the wind and of fire and of water. And they are, you know, having this, what's basically a labor dispute, you know, like the Hershey signs that are all around our community right now. Uh, because the gods are just tired of doing all the heavy labor and they decide they want to create human beings to do all the backbreaking work that they don't want to do anymore. And so, again, there's another god that gets killed and then they take the blood and the body of that God, mix it with clay, and then they make the humans in order to be basically the slaves to do all the menial work. And that's, you know, that, that, that's common stuff. That's what the ancient, you know, other ancient manuscripts are telling us about the origin of the world. And then you contrast that with Genesis 1. Or you look at other places in Scripture where creation is referred to a beautiful account is in Proverbs chapter 8, where wisdom gets personified, sort of a, a pre-incarnate Christ. And, uh, and it's really like they're working together uh, uh, around the craft table to build you know, the world. And it goes like this in Proverbs 8, that when he established the heavens, I was there when he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the, the skies above, and when he established the fountains of the deep, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. So there you see, you know, the sky and the ocean and the land. Then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, or other translations will say, I was daily filled with delight, rejoicing, before him, always rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. So, you know, the Bible's depicting God as a joyful craftsman, an artist, making everything because, dare I say, he's having fun. It's a group project, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters and 
And they're creating out of the overflow of joy. This isn't a violent, bloody D&D campaign. You know? <laughs> this is beautiful. It's, 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 um, it's, it's the overflow of the joy of the fellowship of the Holy Trinity that's creating everything rather than some you know, terrible, you know, violent saga. So just make sure that when you hear those criticisms of Scripture that you understand really, no, there's a stark difference uh, in these creation accounts. So, um, you know, one of the things we also need to reckon with is the fact that we get a little bit, we start missing the message of Genesis 1. Uh, also, when sometimes Christians can get a little overzealous in our efforts to say, no, the Bible's trustworthy, uh, it's, it's reliable, and, and then, you know, when it comes to creation, uh, we start uh, missing the fact that the, the Genesis 1 is primarily theological. We start maybe kind of moving into the thinking that it's a, it's a geology textbook, and that's not helpful either. So, for instance, Genesis 1 is not intended to be, you know, this book where Bible-believing Christians end up categorizing each other and pigeonholing one another as, well, you're liberal or you're conservative or progressive or whatever based whether or not they've been to the Creation Museum, right? Uh, when, when you're standing with Jesus is all dependent upon, you know, your, your view of how long a day was in Genesis 1. So there's plenty of you, plenty of Bible-believing Christians who believe in a, in a six, 24-hour-day creation account. And, and you would have plenty of evidence in Genesis 1 to, to hold to that, to continue to hold to that. Good for you. And there's also Bible-believing Christians who go, well, yeah, I'm seeing the word day in Genesis 1. You know, there was the first day and second day and, you know, the days of creation. And then they go to Genesis 2 because they're Bible-believing. And they open to Genesis 2, verse 4, and they read that these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day, same word, yom, that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So now all of a sudden, the earth and the heavens are made in one day, not six. And they're going, well, now maybe a day doesn't, maybe it's, maybe it's not strictly 24 hours. You know, they'll go to verse 17 of chapter 2, where God warns Adam and Eve that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And, you know, they may coyly ask the question, did it take Adam 24 hours to eat that apple? Anyway. It's called the day-age creationists. You know, the, 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 these are folks who are Bible-believing. And they're looking at Genesis 2 and looking at Genesis 1 and going, okay, the word day has got some range to it, you know. Um, full disclosure for, for me, by the way, I, I fall into a third camp um, where I'm looking at Genesis 1 and it's more concerned with structures than with time. It's, it's really not telling us how long a day is. It's not intended to. But what it is telling us is that on days one, two, and three, God is taking what was formless and void, you know, that we read in verse two. And on days one, two, and three, he's creating forms. It was formless, and now he's creating forms. He's creating the sky. He's creating the, the uh, land. He's creating the sea. Uh, and then on days five, four, five, and six, 
He's filling the void. The earth was formless and void, and then he creates forms, he creates environments, and then he fills those environments with the sun and the moon and the stars and the fish and the animals and the humans. So he creates these structures, and then he fills those structures, and you know, that's called a, a framework uh, you know, theory. So look, the point here is that the creation account is telling us that God created. In the beginning, it was God. Genesis 1 is about God. And it's not so much about the, the when of creation, but the how and the why. Why is God doing this? Uh, now, if this is stepping on your toes, I don't want you to tune me out if you don't like these options that I'm explaining. I want you to keep listening. And I want you to, again, ask yourself, what is the main message of Genesis 1? What's it communicating? What's it telling us? You know, if you get sucked into this whole thing about, you know, are you, are you liberal or conservative, like about, about your view of Scripture and creation, I want you to be biblical. I don't want you to be caught up in those labels. I want you to look at what Genesis 1 is telling us, and I want you to see that what Genesis 1 is really about is that God wasn't created. He was there before creation. He's the first cause. He's the, he's the one without cause, and he makes everything as a result of his word, just speaking it into existence. He creates everything as, as an artist and as a craftsman. It's beautiful and it's good. It's very good, he says at the end on day six. And he makes environments. You know, uh, the earth was formless, and he makes forms. He makes these environments that are hospitable and productive. They bear fruit. Think about the spaces that you and I create, uh, the environments that we shape, and whether or not they're conducive for things and people to flourish. Right? That's what God does. He creates forms that help flourishing, and then he fills those forms with good, fruitful things, things that are life-giving things that are a blessing. He doesn't fill them with anything sinful or harmful. And do we make good, fruitful things to fill the environments that we exist in? And he made these things and they were worthy of his blessing. We're not going to read through all the accounts. Um, I want to commend to you reading Genesis 1 on your own. But what he does consistently is on each day, he blessed it and he said it was good. And what he makes is, is, are, are good things. He doesn't bless what is bad because he doesn't make bad things. I mean, if I, you know, as I'm prone to do, if I put my bagel or my toast in the toaster oven and I go pour my coffee and then something else gets my attention and I wander off and I'm doing this with the dog or whatever and I go back to my burned bagel, I'm not blessing that bagel. It's a burned bagel. I'm throwing it in the trash and I'm toasting a new one and I'm going to pay more attention this time and make it you know, nice and lightly toasted instead of a briquette. God's not blessing anything that's a briquette. He's only blessing what's good. He makes good things and he made you. He made man and woman. He made us male and female. He made humanity and it's good what he made. He's happy with what he made. He made you with his blessing. Are you happy with what he made? Are you happy with how he made you? Do you know you have his blessing? 
There's more that we need to talk, to, talk about that's important about who we are. And, you know, Genesis 1 isn't the entirety of the story. But let me pause right here in the middle of this creation account, and then I want to get to verses 26 and following. But I want to just kind of give you a sense of the scale of what God made, the scale of creation, right? Like we just look around and we go, oh, isn't that great that God made the trees and the grass and the bugs and the birds and all that? But he made everything. And if you were to, to, to try to get a concept of how big creation is and how big God is and what he's done by the word of his power, if you took a tiny grain of sand or like a little grain of salt and put it in the palm of your hand, and if the sun were the size of that grain of sand, then the solar system to scale would fit in the palm of your hand. That's the solar system that we live in that God made with the sun at the center, that little tiny grain of sand. And according to that scale, if you're holding our solar system in your hand, then our, our Milky Way galaxy, where our solar system's a part of, it's the size of North America, Canada, United States, and Mexico. And there's over 200 to 400 billion stars, little grains of sand to, to scale, Take 200 to 400 billion grains of sand and scatter them over North America. And that's our Milky Way. That's our galaxy. And then, look at that. That is the extreme deep field image that took 10 years to basically come up with this image because the Hubble Space Telescope, you know, on its orbit would, would keep taking a picture of this little keyhole. What we're looking at is through a keyhole, through one particular constellation, and over 10 years, the Hubble telescope would keep taking images of this one particular point, this one tiny point looking out into deep space to take a picture of that and to give us those, you know, not only visible light, but infrared and all these other, you know, images. And every speck of light that you see there is not a star. It's a galaxy like the Milky Way. There were 5,500 galaxies in that image that you can't see through a, a, a telescope from Earth. You gotta be out in space with a Hubble telescope. So there's billions of galaxies. And in each one of those billions of galaxies are billions of stars. And in each one of those stars, you know, maybe there's planets. And on this particular planet, there's billions of people. You want a seven and a half billion people on a planet, you know, with, that's orbiting a one of billions of stars and one of billions of galaxies. And then we go, what is man that you're mindful of us? When I consider the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavens that you made with your fingers, like what in the world? How do you think of me? Tim Keller was uh, remarking, now if Jesus Christ holds all this together with just a word of his power, is this the kind of person that you ask into your life to be your assistant? Right? I mean, that's how we regard God sometimes. He's like your roadside assistant coming along to fix the flat tire when the wheels fall off of your life. Or he's the plumber that's come along when your life starts to resemble an overflowing toilet, Right? That's how we regard God sometimes. No, 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 no. He's not our assistant. 
we're, we're his assistants, if not. What, what are we that you are mindful of us, right? God, look, now pick up in verse 26, and let's see how he regards us. This God who makes, you know, just is so infinite, so beyond us, and just mind-blowingly big creation by the word of his power. And then in verse 26, God speaks these words, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And then God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that, he, that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. What is man that you were mindful of him? What are we? We, we are, we are in relation to God. That's who we are. We cannot know ourselves apart from who God is because we are made in his image. That's who we are. We're image bearers. And how does our humanness show people God's glory? How does the fact that you and I walk this planet at this point in time, that we live and breathe and have our being, how is that showing people that God is a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Is that what we project? That's why you're here. How are we doing at that? Do we bear his image well as uniquely male or female? Because that's who we are. How does God intend for your gender to show people the glory of God is either more specifically our helper or rescuer or as a keeper or, or a caretaker. Does, have you, like, not, that God, not that God needs permission, but have you embraced or have you reckoned with the fact that God has the authority to tell you how to use your gender to glorify him? He gave it to you as a gift. And the world, meanwhile, is telling us it's a curse. Reinvent yourself. God made you to manifest his care. His care over creation. You know, and, and then that starts to sound like liberal mumbo-jumbo, right? Creation care. Well, can I just remind us that in, in, in verse 22, on day five, God blessed the animals? Do you bless the animals? 
Do you bless creation? Are you his image bearer when you do that? Are you stewarding what he's given us? And then when you think about promoting his kingdom and his benevolent rule over all things, we have to ask, what influence are we having on those around us? Are the people around us who I am influencing, you know, either with authority or in my response to their authority, am I benefiting them? And this works both ways. If you're old, you've got probably more authority than, than the younger ones. And if you're a kid, you feel like you don't have any authority. But guess what? You influence your parents <laughs> and you can make their day or ruin their day. And so every one of us has a sense of like, I have a kingdom. I have influence. I, have, I, I, I wield you know, power here. And are we wielding our power the way God does with a benevolent rule? to bring blessing instead of a curse. He made everything by the word of his power, right? Like when, when God creates, he speaks things. He says, let there be light. And those are the first words we really hear from God. And then boom, there's light. And he speaks and birds are made. And he speaks and there's fish and he speaks. And he says, let us make man in our image. And things happen, creates realities. That's how creation works. And you and I are his image bearers. Your words speak realities into existence. The words you tell yourself, what's your tape that you're listening to over and over again, guess what? That's forming you. That's creating a reality in your world. The things you're telling yourself. The things you tell other people are shaping and forming their reality. What are you telling other people? Parents, what are you telling your kids? Are you, are, you, are you blessing them or are you cursing them? Are, you, are your words full of grace and truth? What are we telling each other? Spouses, what are you telling one another? Friends, roommates, what are you telling one another? Our words have power. Whoever said six and sends me make my bones, but words can never hurt me is a liar. That's not true. Your words are image-bearing and they create realities. And furthermore, there's... Genesis 1, obviously, is not the end of the story. There's a lot of chapters to come. And there's two chapters at the beginning of the Bible and two chapters at the end of the Bible. Really, only four chapters, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, are the only chapters of the Bible that are not stained with blood, don't have sin in them. Everything in between has sin. And so, all the rest of the Bible is telling that redemptive historical picture of how God is going to redeem what has been corrupted. And we get to the end and we hear about the new creation. How God's not done with creation yet. He's still creating. He's, he, Jesus says he's still making all things new. And one day we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth that will forever rid the world of sin and evil. So I just kind of, kind of come back to that original question. What's the Bible about? What's Genesis 1 about? And if we're kind of wrapped around the axle of, well, how old is the earth? Then we're missing the main message. It's so much bigger. And it's so much more beautiful. There are only, you know, as I said, the four chapters without sin. And it doesn't really take a whole lot of introspection to realize, okay, that whole beautiful image, visit, uh, um, vision of what humanity is supposed to be, I don't match up to that very well. My words and my actions and my my structures and the things I fill my structures with, like, man, I fall short. 
uh, and, and we you know, can look at Genesis 1 and think to ourselves, hey, we're beautifully made, everything's wonderful, everything's good, and come away with a really humanistic kind of worldview, but that's not, as I said, the only message of the Bible. We need more than Genesis 1 if we're going to have an accurate picture of our true condition and if we're going to have an accurate picture of who God is. Without the rest of the Bible, we don't know what's the full extent of God's love. Does he only love his friends? What does he think about his enemies? It's the rest of the Bible that teaches us, you know what, God's love is so high and wide and deep and long that he would even love enemies. And he demonstrated that through Jesus. So it should be evident that, you know, despite the fact that we're these beautiful image bearers, we don't treat ourselves or others with the dignity that we've been created with. And we don't bring blessings into the world the way that we should. Frequently, we, we actually end up doing the opposite. We don't properly honor the God who created us. And, and there's all this disparity between what we should do and what we, what we, what we don't do. And Neil Plantinga puts it like this, that sin offends God not, not only because it bereaves or assaults God directly as like an impiety or blasphemy, but also because it bereaves and assaults what God has made, his creation. Shalom is God's design for creation and redemption, and sin is blamable human vandalism of these great realities, and therefore an affront to their architect and builder, the one who was the architect and builder of billions of galaxies. And we're falling short of what he's called us to be. Paul put it this way in Romans 1, you know, and he's using the creation uh, context. He says, although we knew God, didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but in our futile thinking and their foolish hearts, you know, we're darkened. And we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And then God comes along and he doesn't just, you know, wipe us out for that, but he rescues us. And he gives us Jesus. God isn't finished yet, right? God says in Revelation 21, um, he tells uh, the Apostle John, says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. There's this whole language about new creation. Paul picks it up in 1 Corinthians 5. And he, he kind of like does the whole from the word of his power that God speaks and creates. And he says, if anyone is in Christ, boom, new creation. Doesn't even use, bother to fill it in with a verb. He just says, new creation. If anyone's in Christ, new creation. It just happens. God makes it happen. God makes us ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. I mean, let me wrap up with this, that Paul is describing new creation. He's describing not only new heaven, new earth, but new humanity. And it happens the same way the first creation happened, by God speaking. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. How? Well, because that person believed on Christ, put their faith in Christ, repented of not living up to what God has created us to do, and has asked for forgiveness through Christ, 
who knew no sin yet became sin for our sake so that all who believe in him will become the righteousness of God because God speaks it and he makes it true. We go, well, how, how can I be righteous before God given the fact that I've fallen short? Well, it doesn't matter what you've done. What matters is what Jesus has done. The one who paid the penalty for our sin, who died on the cross to take our sins away and rose again from the dead victorious to start a new humanity, to inaugurate the new heaven and the new earth that all who believe in him are going to be counted or declared and spoken of by God's word as if he or she is innocent and righteous and clean and beautiful and pure and new. That's who you are in Christ because God speaks it. And he says and he creates that new reality and we are called to live into that, to put that on and to walk in that and learn to you know, feel comfortable in those shoes and to put off the old, leave the old sinful clothing behind, and put on display the new thing that God's doing, a new humanity, a new heaven, a new earth, because we're not just image bearers of God. All humanity is an image bearer of God. You can't help it. Every human being has inherent dignity and worth. Maybe they're not acting like a great image bearer, but they're still an image bearer. But as Christians, a Christian is an, a little Christ, we become not only God's image bearers, but, but Jesus' image bearers. His ambassadors, right? Isn't that what an ambassador is? Somebody who represents the ruler from you know, the other country. And they come and they're basically saying and acting in ways that reflect well on the king or the ruler. And that's what Paul says. We are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How well are we modeling Christ's appeal to the world to be reconciled to God? That's Jesus's mission. We are his ambassadors. Is this your mission? Are we living in such a way that we're pointing people to this grand purpose? When's the last time you implored somebody, be reconciled to God? Maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody at school. Maybe somebody on your team where you get in the nitty-gritty of that conversation with them. Who is Christ? What has he come to do? What has he done in your life? And how can you be a means of Jesus' invitation to come and be reconciled to God? That's his mission. That's our mission. How well are we modeling Jesus, the image of God, the, the God incarnate, and showing people his grace and his truth. The Bible says a lot about us, right? About humanity and the world, but it, it's not really fundamentally about us. This book is about God. Our lives, you know, yeah, we, we live them as unique individuals, but our lives are not really about us either. Our lives are supposed to be about God because we're his image bearers? Does your life, does my life tell people the truth about God? We're going to conclude with a confession of sin during the season of Lent. This is something we're doing each week. I think it's a, appropriate to teach us and to lead us in what it looks like to be people who are living a life of ongoing repentance and faith and lamenting what's wrong and putting our hope in the one who can make all things new. So I'm going to I'm going to close the sermon and I'm going to invite you to pray with me and, and join me in this confession of sin and then we'll have a moment of, of silent confession or, or lamenting whatever is on your heart 
And I'll, I'll close this after a while, but please uh, pray with me these words. Oh God, the earth is full of your creatures. In wisdom, you have made us all, and you have delivered us into one another's care, asking that we love one another as you first loved us. But we have fostered discord rather than unity, contempt rather than respect, ignorance rather than love. Communities, peoples, creatures, lands, seas, they have been set apart or torn apart or driven apart by conflicting claims and thoughtless ambitions. You know our works and our thoughts, Lord. So do this day as you have promised. Gather together all our tribes and tongues and restore us to harmony. Reconcile us in your spirit of peace that all flesh shall worship your name. Amen. Let's be silent before him. I want you to hear now these words from Romans 8 that assure us, that reassure us that God is for us, that he loves us, that he gave himself for us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God.